Well, I certainly am so delighted to welcome you here this morning. It is always a joy to have you. And um, I'm especially thrilled today because a year ago today, I couldn't taste or smell a thing. And uh, today, I'm happy to report that the bacon was salty and tasty this morning. And uh, that strawberry yogurt, right on, right on the spot. So very, very grateful for just the opportunity to be a year post the, um, the COVID experience. And I know some of you have had resurgence of those things, and I just trust that um, the Lord will give you strength and heal you up and have you on your feet and ready to go. So um, regarding the special speaker we have coming in February, I just want to encourage you to be a part of that day. Um, we are going, um, by having this speaker come in, and you know that we've talked about creation, uh, we've talked about um, rebellion, we've talked about redemption, we've talked about restoration, those four key words where the story of the world can be shaped and, and told through those four words. You know about that. And we're going to have special speakers that come in throughout the year. And this is the first of those special um, list of speakers. And this guy is a creation guy. So he's going to take that creation, that first word, and he's just going to explode it. And we're going to be looking at uh, a biblical explanation for creation, our origins. And he'll be uh, taking on the uh, deceptive theories of the billions and billions and billions of years. You know, the, the, the theory that the secular, the heart of the secular system that addresses our origins and tells us where we came from and why we're here, okay? He's taking it on. So we need lots of prayer cover um, for that particular day especially, but going forward uh, here in the life of our church, um, we just need so much support on that, and we want you to be a part of it. Uh, it'll be three speaking sessions with a Q&A to, to wrap up the day. And so uh, the tables and chairs will be here in the sanctuary. Thank you, Mike, for updating everybody on this. There's a video that's available on our Facebook page. And then also you just saw the video here this morning. Ideal for college students, high school students. Ideal for uh, biology professors and, and chemists. It's ideal for those in your family who uh, have questioned our origins and they've questioned the global flood and they've questioned the authority of the Bible when it comes to creation and what it expresses. So be sure to plan to be a part of that day because again we're going for the very heart of the secular system. If we bring, if we see that collapse by the grace of God in people's thinking and worldview, then Everything collapses. Everything secular collapses. Now we've got a foundation on which we can build a biblical worldview. And that's the goal and that's the hope. So we invite you into that. We're making a great proposal. And, um, and the great proposal is that the Bible has it right. And it gives you information that transforms your life, that sets you up for human flourishing and for... Um, to be able to um, shine bright and to fulfill all that God has for you to fulfill. So, um, plan on being a part of that day. So, we're looking at a new series. Um, it's called Living in the Lion's Den. And the people of God in exile is kind of the subtitle for this. And we're so glad that you're here and you're joining with us. Um, we started last week by introducing you through the book of Jeremiah 29 that talks about how we're to live in exile. Um, there are a lot of writers today, especially uh, in uh, Christian ranks, that are now proposing that we are a post-Christian culture, a post-biblical worldview culture. In other words, we don't have home field advantage anymore. The assumptions that people operate and live their life by many years ago, those assumptions have kind of withered and fallen by the wayside and now um, we are having to operate off of a different set of assumptions that there are no biblical worldview assumptions that we have to start with a new foundation lay that foundation again in our lives and so um, given that information given that reality and even if you don't buy the proposal I would encourage all of us to assume assume go ahead it's safe for us to assume that that in fact is happening I could give you case by case by case, lots of different illustrations and examples that would help substantiate that proposal. 
um, won't take the time to do that this morning, but there are many, 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 many things um, that we see in culture that is looking not just to marginalize the biblical worldview standpoint, but to totally eliminate it. There is a very real theory out there, and that theory says the world would be a better place without religion, without Christians, without the Bible. We'd all get along so much better if we didn't have that. It's a very real idea. And so, of course, I'm going to take the opposite stance from that position and tell you and encourage you that, no, in fact, God's got it right. That, that God and his word and his truth, even though we're in a post-truth culture, his truth will lead you home. Amen? It'll lead you home. And we're going to stick with that. And we've committed to that. And we're going to tease that out and what all that might mean. And so... Uh, let's just go ahead. I, I want to read through Daniel's uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, because if we want to develop a biblical worldview, obviously we've got to be in the Bible. And so um, we'll just read those verses. And then I want to, we'll back up and go a little more slowly through them so we understand what's, what's in front of us. And then um, we're going to talk just a little, bit, a little bit, we have to talk a little bit about Babylon on a map. And that's important that we understand Babylon on a map and Daniel's Babylon. But it's also equally important for us to understand that Babylon is not just some ancient dusty place that people archaeologically dig around in. It is not just a place like that on a map. Babylon, get this now, hear me church, Babylon is also in your pocket. David Kinnaman floats the idea, we are all living in digital Babylon. All of the influential things that we're going to read about in Daniel 1, 1 through 7, all those influential things, the, the things we read, the things we hear, uh, the names we assume, all these different things uh, impact us, and they are not just sitting there in the history books now. They, these ideas are circulating, and they're in our pockets in fact, Kinnaman says we are all exiles now. You and I are digital exiles. We're immersed in a culture, many times a secular worldview is proposed. And it's almost like the air we breathe and the water we swim in. If a fish doesn't know it's in the water, it's just this world. We don't know that we're taking it all in. We don't know that we're breathing it and we're living it. But so many times that's the case. And so, uh, so we're going to have to talk a little bit about digital Babylon. And then I, I want to talk to you about Daniel's parents a little bit. We get a really incredible insight when we read uh, what Daniel's name was and, and his three friends, his three uh, Jewish brothers, what their names were. Uh, and we get an indication as to kind of the kind of parents they had. And so what I want to know is that as I am... If, in fact, we are living in the lion's den and the people of God are in, in exile and we are pushed to the margins of things, how are we to live in light of those things? And I'll tell you one of the very best responses is to have parents who understand this and parents who, um, who are building into our life. And I guess I really could call this one of this, uh, this opening message the power of the parental stamp. Daniel never got away from it. And if we're going to make it, if, if, if our kids are going to survive, if we're going to know how to navigate the culture and breathe the air of culture and, and, and work around the corrosive soil of secular culture, if we're going to do this, then we have to have that parental stamp where we, we, we understand the biblical worldview and we're stamping our kids in an early age. You know, I remember... Um, one of the things that Will told me, of course, um, I talk a lot about them when they're not here. He's in Germany. I don't know that he even watches me, so I really am on good, strong ground here, okay? But uh, one time he told me because I knew that, you know what, uh, these guys don't lie, cheat, and steal, but they're human and they're men, and I better be talking about the gift of their sexuality from an early age. Otherwise, if they become... Can you imagine, Will, a parent as a sophomore in high school? No, I couldn't do it. I couldn't either. Okay? 
I couldn't either. And so it's like, I, I got to have a talk with this kid because, you know. And so I remember, of course, having that talk many, many times just about how he uses the gift of the sexuality and, the, and, and really all of our kids. And so you just, you just can't neglect that conversation. You have to have it. You have to have it often. And I remember having it often with him. And he said, you know, and I don't know what, to what degree he's uh, tested the theory of, uh, you know, letting your sexuality be used in a way that honors God and that the bonding mechanism of how that's supposed to work, uh, to, to, to uh, use it in a way that just is going to be helpful in your marriage, your future relationship. Uh, but he said, you know, I remember... Uh, he says, if I think about doing immorality, and I think, and maybe, like I said, he's, I don't know to what degree he's tested the theory, but he said, I can't enjoy it. And if I think about doing it or I experiment with it, I can't enjoy it. You've stamped me. Boom. I told Donette that, and she smiled real big, said, good. Good. We don't want him to until it's, the time is right. Amen? See, we stamped him. Boom. Now, I don't know. He's left home. He's in Germany. He's living in an anonymous life. I don't know where and what and who. and I, I don't know. I don't know. But we've stamped him. He'll always remember. And I'm going to propose to you this morning that the power of the parental stamp You'll not soon shake it. And the reason we've got the book of Daniel is he got stamped by his mommy and his daddy. Okay? I'm going to show you that in just a second. And I don't know but what maybe I shouldn't just jump right to it. Uh, I, the, the temptation for me just to jump to it, but I, I, uh, I want to get this thing up and off the ground. And so we, l let me just go ahead and, and lay, my, lay my track uh, for this series but just know that Danielle, Daniel, Danielle, L, shortened form of Elohim, mom and daddy named him Danielle, Daniel, God is my judge, Daniel, whenever you live your life, I don't care where you go, what, what you, where your address is, who you're with, what schools you go to, the relationships you have in your life, the pressure you're put under to succumb to a secular worldview culture, I don't care. Daniel, you are Danielle. You are Daniel. You are, you are God is your judge. God is the all-powerful one, Elohim, El, the short, Danielle. You, you never forget your name, Daniel. We've stamped you with an identity and a vision for your life. And one of the reasons we even have the book is because a mommy and a daddy stamped him. And he couldn't get away from it. Even though he was surrounded by, immersed in, he was Babylonia, Babylonianized totally in his culture. But yet he maintained a distinctive identity. And so... Uh, you know, living in the lion's den, the people of God in exile, just know that we're talking about how to live in the world, how to live in Babylon without letting the world live in you. Life in the lion's den, we have to understand this, it doesn't involve, always involve a lion in your face roaring and overwhelming you. It's the little subtle battles over who you're going to be, who the true God is, who God says you are, and whether or not you're going to honor him with your life. And the question this morning as we launch into this is, do you have the discernment and the courage? Have you been stamped with an identity to know when and where to draw the line in your life? Because there will come a time when you'll have to draw the line. We're going to be talking a lot about Daniel in this series. Daniel was ripped out of his family in Israel and marched 700 miles from home to the, to the east from where he was. He was ripped out of his family. There's no resistance. 
He was marched off to Babylon, 700 miles away. There's no resistance. He, he goes with it. He was enrolled in Babylonian State University, BSU, of the Old Testament world. No resistance. He went through a mandated change of name. No resistance. And finally, he was required to ingest idol-sanctioned food for diet. And he had three words, no can do. Not happening. The meat symbolically brought you into fellowship with the Babylonian gods. It was more than just food. It was a spiritual transaction. And Daniel was like, I am not opening up my life to some demonic realm. You can change my name. I'll go to BSU. I'll do whatever it is, however I can get along in this culture, fine. I'll, I'll adapt, I'll adjust to my new home life and my new dwellings. I'll learn your language, I'll study your literature, I'll get your, your college degree. But I'm not opening my life up to a worldview that says I'm going to explore and experiment in the demonic and the occultic. And I'll do that through food. Daniel knew if he didn't draw a line in the area of his appetites that this culture in Babylon would consume him and he'd lose himself. Have you lost yourself? Are you being consumed by culture and the views of Babylon? It's easy to do. And so Daniel wasn't changed by his world. He changed his world. He witnessed powerfully before kings. And this is why you come to church men and women, when you're out there in secular culture and you're being ripped out of your family context and you're being marched wherever and you're enrolling here and you're mandating there and you're required this, there comes a time when you have to draw the line. And unless you've been stamped, it's easy not to draw that line. And so I want you to hear my voice, correct correction I want you to hear the voice of scripture when you're out there living your life in your Babylon I want you to hear the voice of 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 the Bible that says remember Daniel remember Daniel so uh, as we think about this let's just look at um, these verses quickly pull up uh, Daniel chapter 1 verse 1 through 7 We'll read through this so you'll know kind of where we're at. In the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Next slide. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Verse 6, among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, or Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel. This is what Babylonianized involved it will change your name we're going to change your identity to Daniel uh, from Daniel to the name Belteshazzar to Hananiah Shadrach to Mishael Meshach and to Azariah Abednego may God add his blessing to the reading of the word what are we, what's going on here well I think you know that uh, the people of Israel has gone have been besieged by uh, 
a Nebuchadnezzar, a Babylonian ruler, and perhaps in an, an, another service I'll give you like a short history of how we got there. But I want to hasten to the text this morning because I feel like it's so important. And that when we look at this, we see that in these first seven verses, you've got a tale of two kingdoms, you've got a tale of two cultures, you've got a tale of two worldviews, and you've got a tale of two names. And it's in your version notes if you care to follow along that way. And so when we look at this, we see obviously it's a tale of two kingdoms. Because back to verse 1 in the text, Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So we see what man is doing. Man is at work, but what you also have to realize that what, what man is doing is the historical. God is doing something as well, and that's the spiritual, and that's what we read. And the Lord delivered. Nebuchadnezzar is besieging. But the Lord, notice what it says, the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And so when we look at the verbs of, of verses 1 and 2 in this opening uh, preamble of this incredible book, there's five verbs, right? The first two verbs, Nebuchadnezzar came and he besieged. That's verse 1. If we go to verse 2, we see two more verbs. He carried off and he put these articles um, from the Jewish temple in his, in Marduk's temple. All right? So we've got a fifth verb in the center of those four verbs. So Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged. He carried off and he put, but what's the middle verb? The middle verb, the Lord delivered. The Lord delivered. Nebuchadnezzar was doing this and this and this and this, but God, God stepped in and God delivered it. And so what we want to see here at the opening of this thing is that there's two sides of history. There's the factual, historical side, the human side, and there's the theological or the spiritual side. There's stuff happening around us, and it's the historical stuff, but God is at work, and he understands the why. Nebuchadnezzar attacked, but the Lord gave or delivered. Now, here's the principle. What, some stuff happens in our life that's unpredictable. It's surprising. We can't believe it. How could God allow this? How could God do that? How could God let this happen? We're the good guys. We're Israel, right? We're stewarding the promises. How could God allow this rogue nation to sweep in, besiege us, lay siege to our city three different times, take some of the best brain trusts we've got, i.e. Daniel and his friends, all the way, uh, 700 miles away? How could God allow this to happen? What you've got to remember and what I've got to remember is that it's a tale of two kingdoms. There's two kingdoms at work in the world. Nebuchadnezzar took some stuff, uh, the articles from the temple of God. Um, if you do a quick check on Ezra 1.1, you're going to find out it wasn't just a few trinkets and souvenirs that you could get at the local flea market. This was high, this was sacred stuff. It was high dollar stuff. It was valuable stuff. 5,400 things, articles taken from the Jewish temple. And he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, Marduk, the national God of Babylon. This would have just been devastating to a Jewish young 15-year-old Jewish boy, right? The temple of Marduk stood prominently in the middle of the city of Babylon, and by confiscating the Jewish temple articles, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to express his thanks to the God Marduk for allowing him to conquer the land of Israel he also wanted to humiliate Yahweh. And so whenever you did warfare in the ancient Near Eastern context, it was always about your God winning and beating the other God. And so now he has humiliated the God of Israel. And he takes his, he defeats the nation. He takes these articles. He puts them in, in a special ceremony. He has them installed in his God's temple back in Babylon. Sometimes we look at that and we say, God, how could you do that? What we have to remember is that God is sovereign, but it's a humble sovereignty. 
he allows the Nebuchadnezzars of the world to ransack his house sometimes. He, he's willing, this God, this Yahweh God is willing to be humiliated. He's willing to be shamed. He's willing to be mocked if it will awaken his people to their need for him. And he just allows himself to be subjected to this kind of, of um, shenanigan by the Nebuchadnezzar leader and king and people. Does that sound familiar? Was there another time in the Bible when God in humble sovereignty laid down on a cross and let people spit on him so that the world would be awakened to their need for him, or the true king? It's how God does things. He's a humble sovereign, but don't underestimate him. Now later in the series, we'll see what happens when another Babylonian king decides to use these utensils that Nebuchadnezzar swiped from Israel's temple. He decides in a drunken orgy to bring these utensils out and drink from them. And you're going to have to stay with the series to know what happens when you do that. Even a humble sovereign says, uh-uh. There's a time he steps in and he holds us accountable. Mene, mene, tekel, you farson. King Belshazzar, a young upstart Babylonian ruler, didn't know who he was messing with. And the humble sovereign checked him. And you're going to stay with the series and you're going to see how, what a major check it was. But I want you to see at the, on, at the onset of this thing that sometimes we do presume on God's grace and we flip God off, but he's a humble sovereign. He lets things play out. And so we see here that there are two kingdoms at work in Daniel's world. There's the kingdom of Babylon and the kingdom of Judah, and they collide. So it's a tale of two kings. It's a tale of two kingdoms. It's a tale of two gods. And this first thing and this first king that Daniel had to deal with is Nebuchadnezzar, but there was a kaleidoscope of kings that he had to deal with. Daniel lived through four administrations in Babylon. There was Nebuchadnezzar, there was Belshazzar, there was Darius, the Mede, there was Sias, the Medo-Persian leader. And, and so Daniel lived through the, the, the administrations of four kings. And I want you to know something. That your kingdom, your reign, will eventually come to an end someday. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was on top of the world. So did Belshazzar, drinking out of the sacred temple of uh, the, the uh, cups and the goblets from the sacred temple of, of Israel. Darius and Cyrus, they all had their moment of glory. And their kingdoms came crashing down. And we can't miss that obvious truth as we launch into this series on the book of Daniel. It's a tale of two kingdoms. And you and I have to realize that our kingdoms are going to come crashing down someday. That they won't last forever. You're not going to last forever. You're going to rule for a little while. And then you're going to have to give it up. And it's, it's the great uncut stone of Daniel that he talks about, a kingdom that demolishes and smashes the other kingdoms of the world. And it's to him we, we have to be, show our allegiance and our love. It's to him that we are to obey and, and to align our resources and our viewpoints of life with him and his kingdom because it's a great kingdom that will shatter the kingdoms of men. So it's a tale of two kingdoms. Secondly, starting in verse 3, it's a tale of two cultures. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials. He was like the master of the eunuchs. Some translations will convey that. And according to Jewish historian Josephus, uh, the Babylonians even made Daniel and his friends eunuchs, which would help explain why we never read of Daniel having a wife. Imagine that. You're, you're kidnapped hostage in Babylon. And now you're emasculated in the services of a pagan king. Do you think he had a temptation to get bitter? Would he, be, would he have a right to be ticked? I think he would. But somehow he overcomes this. To bring, verse 3, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. We, he wanted high IQ people. 
people that already had some training. And Nebuchadnezzar's empire, it's an expanding empire. And so he wants the best and the brightest and the future brain trust. He wants to train them, Babylonianize them, so they can be responsible and lead in various parts of his administration. Talk about culture shock for the young Jewish teenager. He's a rural Jewish teen from Judah. He steps foot in the big city of Babylon, the wealthiest, most powerful nation and city at the world in the world at that time they're known for the hanging gardens around the terrace palace grounds there's tier upon tier slide number six if you would for me tier upon tier uh, of greenery one of the seven wonders of the ancient world uh, a staff had to wait on these gardens 24 hours a day the river euphrates flowed through the city the banks of the of the river inside the city proper beautifully walled you can see some of that slide seven the main entrance of the capital city the gate of ishtar okay it's named after the chief goddess who was considered the queen of heaven little rural daniel 15 year old rural jewish daniel steps into this city and, and the walls are 300 feet high they're 85 feet thick next slide 56 miles long that circumference the city the gate of Ishtar, even though it wasn't completed when Daniel was actually uh, brought into Babylon, it was completed like several years later, but still he would have walked through elaborate gates. Next slide. No doubt his heart racing, utter amazement. Next slide. At the end of the, uh, and at the same time, a sense of hopelessness. What have I gotten myself into? My God has been defeated. My temple is going to soon be destroyed. My, my God has been humiliated. I'm now in, immersed in a Babylonian culture. I, I, I miss my mom. I miss my dad. I miss my way of life, my festivals and my feast and my Torah. I miss all of these things. What's going to happen here in Babylon? And I'm sure they paused while they were going through some of the Babylonian gates and reading the inscriptions that they had engraved and, and carved into the stone of those grand entryways into the city of Babylon. King of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the pious prince appointed by the will of Marduk, his God. The untiring governor, the wise, the humble, the firstborn of Nabopalazar, the king of Babylon, am I. And little Daniel's like, oh Imagine a 15-year-old boy living hundreds of miles from his family, constantly barraged by pagan philosophy, surrounded by the intimidating sights and sounds of a big city. And the only thing that held him sure in that moment, parental stamp. He was stamped. And it held him true. Listen. They would have walked down through those gates, down the main boulevard called the Processional Way. Slide number 11, 150 feet wide, two-way traffic, landscape meeting in between, again, tiled walls, mosaics, a palm tree stretching 30 feet high with a band of lions marching in single file under the palm trees. Lions on tiled lions on the sides of the wall seven feet long it gave you the impression that lions were walking down the processional way as well it was a stunning display of wealth and power and nebuchadnezzar was fascinated by lions he was obsessed with them he would collect them and and these are live lions not your stuffed animal variety okay these are live lions and wild animals and he would show them off and occasionally if you didn't suit him he would make you lunch Daniel has no idea at 15 years of age that 60 years later, 55 years later, he's going to be thrown in one of these lion's dens by another ruler. But can you imagine young Daniel and his friends walking through that massive gate down this boulevard thinking it's not Jerusalem anymore? The culture shock, the defeat, the discouragement. The people yelling, you foolish Jews think that you have the only corner on truth. You should have called out to Marduk. Maybe he would have delivered you there in Jerusalem. 
when you are immersed in secular culture, you have to know where your lines are going to be drawn before you ever get them. If you don't, it will eat you alive. Daniel knew before he ever got there. He had been stamped. He knew before he ever arrived and gone through those gates like an Ishtar gate type of deal. He knew who he was. So it's a tale of two kingdoms. It's a tale of two cultures. Quickly now, it's a tale of two worldviews. Verse 4, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. You know, Joyce Baldwin, a Daniel scholar, she says the writer of Daniel implies no objection to the study of the polytheistic literature in which magic, sorcery, charms, astrology all played a prominent part in the curriculum of the Babylonian universities. Daniel would have been immersed in the mythologies of creation, immersed in the, in, in the origins of mankind and the plurality of gods. He would have studied cuneiform writing and wisdom literature and, and religious rituals and epics and letters and dream journals and vision manuals. He would have had a profound introduction to the science of the most popular hot topic. We've got wokeism today. We've got a lot of transgender. We've got a lot of hot topics. Their political hot topic in Babylon was divination. We'll study and interpret omens by looking at the heavens and the astrologies and the terrestrial and celestial phenomena. We'll even look at sheep's livers and we'll get insight. The Babylonians, they loved astrology and magic and archaeologists have discovered many tablets with magic formulas. Daniel was immersed in it. Six uh, brief descriptions of these young men and I think it's intriguing they're without physical defect this is verse 4 um, so they're like flawless physical specimens in his court is what he wanted uh, Nebuchadnezzar wanted good looking people right he wanted people with great physical qualities and, and he was just that's his worldview. that's how he saw things and he wanted people that were intelligent in every branch of wisdom Okay, he wanted these guys to be handsome, but he, he, he wanted them to be able to spell, right? You can't be handsome and represent Nebuchadnezzar and not spell words, right? So he wanted them to be able to smell, spell, you know, intelligent, every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding, discerning. Verse 4, able to stand in the king's court. They had poise. They knew their etiquette, their manners. These Jewish, rural Jewish boys. Standing in the great courts of a Babylonian monarch. Can I just say something right here? You have high value regardless of what some Babylonian tyrant thinks of you. Regardless of what you look like physically. Regardless of how you do on standardized tests. Okay? God made you. You have something very unique and beautiful to offer the world. And whatever ability he's given you, honor God with it. Honor him with it. And But what we see here is that Nebuchadnezzar is going for the next generation. Get, let's get young teenagers with six-packs and GQ looks. And let's bring them into our secular culture. And let's Babylonianize them. And let's re-educate them. And let's subject them to a new world view. And let's educate them in the Chaldean culture for three years. Here in America, we call that college. Let's Babylonianize them. Let's re-educate them. Slide 17, verse 5. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Whatever the king ate, they ate. They got to hang out with the king. They got to be entertained. All kinds of activity and fanfare was surrounded by this. Let's make these boys feel good. Because if we can make them feel good, they're going to love to be Babylonians. 
H.C. Leupold, commentator and scholar, says, he points out that there was more to the meals than nourishment. Feasting in honor to the gods. The image was fed in a ceremonial fashion accompanied by music. The gods were supposedly fed the offerings and the produce of the temple land and the flocks. And when the god had eaten, quote unquote, from his meal, then all the other plates were sent out to the people for consumption. And that all the while, eating like this placed you in fellowship with the spirit of that god. So Daniel could do, he could let them change names, he could wear their wardrobe, he could go to their schools, he could do whatever else they asked him to do, but when it came to that point, no can do. I can't open my life to this. They were to be trained, the text says, for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. And so we have a clash of cultures and worldviews. We have the Jews and their prophets. We have the Babylonians and their magicians. And what we have to understand is that right here is that when we get three-year scholarships, it may be more than just about food. Because usually there's ideas, and ideas are not neutral. Ideas and values have a purpose and a reason behind them. And so we have here a tale of two worldviews. So there's a tale of two kingdoms, a tale of two cultures. It's a tale of two worldviews. And finally here this morning, it's a tale of two names. Among those, verse 6, among those who were chosen were, were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. It's his way of saying, you're in my house now. I own you. We're going to remake you according to our values. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And Azariah, Abednego. And what's so amazing is that when you look at these Hebrew boys' names, back home, Daniel was Daniel, right? El was Elohim. So, so his parents, his mom and dad named him Daniel or Daniel. Right? We want you to always re re know that you, are, you have been stamped with Elohim, the most powerful God. Hananiah and Azariah were also stamped. It wasn't just Daniel and Mishael, but it was Hanah, Hananiah, Azariah, okay? It's a shortened form of Yahweh. And so you've got Daniel and, and Mishael, and you've got Hananiah and Azariah. Right? Yahweh is written into their name. And so you, now we know a little bit about their moms and their dads who understood that there was coming a time in uncertainty in the culture they lived in. That they may not always be available to these boys and they wanted to stamp them early and often with who they were. And so they had Elohim and Yahweh written into their name. Daniel, Daniel, God is my judge. Now his name has been, he has been renamed to, to Belteshazzar. Bel protects his life. false god of Babylon, Hananiah, God is gracious, that's what it meant, but now he's Shadrach, he's the commander of the moon god, Mishael, who is like God, and now he, his name has been changed to, to a name that means who is like Aku, one of the Babylonian deities, Azariah, God is my helper, he became Abednego, the servant of Nego, another Babylonian heathen god, so these boys are being re-stamped with a new identity. And so here we have it. At the beginning of this incredible book, we have Babylon, Babylon and Babylonian culture. And we have these boys who have been stamped with a God identity from an early age immersed in it and so the drama builds what what's going to happen what will they do and you'll see next week what the test that they're put through and this whole idea of eating food that was offered to idols and what that invited in their life and how daniel said i can't do that it's like meatloaf i can't do that okay can't do it
I can do a lot of things, but I can't do that. Do you have any area of your life where you have drawn the line? I'm Danielle. I represent Elohim or Yahweh. I've been stamped by my mom and my dad. I don't care what you tell me how pretty you are, or how wonderful you are, how smart you are, how wealthy you are, how hip you are, how trendy you are, how TikTok viral you are. I've been stamped. I can't do it. Do you have any area in your life like that? What I'm going to tell you is you, we have to identify it early in life because if we don't, we are immersed in digital Babylon. Slide number 28. We'll make this quick applicational leap here this morning. Slide number 28, what's it say? David Kinnaman, Matt Matlock, written a whole book on, Mark Matlock, written a whole book on this. We are all residents of digital Babylon now. We are all exiles now. You and I have Babylon not on a map. It's in our pockets. All the influences of the Babylonian world right here, all the influence of secular culture, Right here it is. You would not believe the studies, church, the studies that's been conducted. That all of the anxiety and the stress and the transgender, all these different value things. You would not believe how it all ties back to 2012 and even before. When this little device we call a smartphone took off. We got Babylon in our pockets. These little lighted rectangles in our pockets, they've redefined everything. And we're all immersed in digital Babylon. We're eating at the king's table. We, we are immersed in another culture. We're learning to speak the world's language. We're valuing the world's pictures. We're having our minds molded hour by hour by all the things we take in. And what I, my, my proposal this morning and my contention is that the deep spiritual longing that we have is being drowned out by binging and streaming on videos and immersive digital gaming and social media scrolling. This deep longing we, we have for connection with Elohim and our Yahweh God, or our, the God who tells us who we are, and we drown it out by digital Babylon. Young people especially use the screens in their pockets as counselors and entertainers, instructors, sex educators. I mean, after all, why build up the courage to have what, to have the conversation, an awkward conversation, right, with a parent, a pastor, a teacher? Why go to that trouble when you can just talk to digital Babylon? The only problem is, like I said, ideas aren't neutral. And whatever ideas you're getting has a, an agenda behind it. And so we start eating and breathing the air of Babylon, digital Babylon. Now listen, I, I'm not anti-smartphone. I mean, I got this thing. It helps me communicate with my grandkids. helps me communicate with my family, with you. I love getting instant answers to my questions, right? You can watch a step-by-step -step tutorial on fixing a, mecha a mechanical problem. For me, I have to watch it 59 times. All right, maybe you're smarter than me on the, some things, so you know, maybe a couple times for you, but take me 59, right? We can listen to our favorite song. We can discover our new recipe and have it for dinner that night. We can get a book in just a few days. We can even prove who the lead, the lead actor was in the Home Alone Christmas movie several years ago. Anybody know who that was? Somebody's been Googling. See what I mean? Aren't they great? These are great. They're awesome. But what you have to realize is that you got digital Babylon in your pocket. You don't have to go 700 miles from Jerusalem to Babylonia. It's all in your pocket. Do you know how to follow Jesus any better because of social media? Does the web teach you to slow down and save her life, or does it induce more stress due to the speed at which everything moves? 
the information flow of news cycles and millions of posts. And that's why we're stressed. All the, all the uh, think tank people will tell you that's why we're stressed. We can't keep up with the hyper-stimulated world. We're bombarded with digital Babylon with unprecedented force and frequency. It's conflicting. It's chaotic. And the messages are chaotic about what matters and how to live. We don't know. Because we've listened to a Babylonian voice. Latest blog post, the newest music, the most popular television show, your news outlets, how many likes, how many shares, what's viral, what's hip. You live in a culture right now that is hostile to your faith, to your overall human flourishing. You and I, and Kinnaman's got it right, you and I are exiles now. We can't see or conceive life without digital Babylon. You live in a culture that laughs at someone who says, I want to save the gift of my sexuality for the person I marry. They laugh at that. They laugh at someone who says, you're too prudish to explore all sides of your sexuality, including either gender. You're living in a culture, a Babylonian culture that says, and I'm learning new acronyms all the time, but everybody's a lug. Well, what's a lug? L-U-G, lesbian until graduation. I know what I'm talking about. God knows what he's talking about. Draw your line. Draw it today. There's some things you can do in culture. Learn the language, do the social media, follow the blogs, wear the wardrobe, do your life. Meatloaf said it, but I can't do that. I can't do that. Why? I'm Danielle. I'm Daniel. And I can't get the face of my mom at my daddy who loved me from the time I've been that big. That mama nursing me on her shoulder. Daddy playing Hot Wheels with me in the living room floor. A church that loved me and witnessed my baptism. Cheered for me at that basketball court. Cheered for me as I rounded the bend and came out of the woods and crossed country. There's some things I can do in life, and I'll give you that. But there's some things I can't do because I've got stand. Where do you draw the line? So much more to share with you this morning, but I want to wrap it up this way. I want you to get stamped. Young people, bam, stand. I want you to hear the voice of Remember Daniel. When you step foot on the college campus, when you go to work, when you get on that social media and start to dialogue and converse, remember you've been stamped. This last slide this morning, Josh Mulvey Hill, he helped, he's so helpful right here. Uh, he wrote a book, Josh Mulvey Hill, I'll close with this. He wrote a book, 50 Things Every Child Needs to Know Before Leaving Home. And if it's not in the slideshow, it's because I changed it last night. So maybe if it's, you don't see it, that's fine. It's hard to find it because you can't really Google for that. Just know it's out there. 50 Things Every Child Needs to Know Before Leaving Home. Now, I'm not going to give you all 50. You're like, that's good but I'm going to give you a few and he said when I was 17 my parents took me out for breakfast and he said my first thought is well I'm in trouble 
I've done something that I shouldn't have done, and mom and dad are taking me to breakfast, going to give me biscuits and gravy before they lower the boom. That's what he thought. But then he said they looked at him, you know, they enjoyed their biscuits and gravy and their Grand Slam breakfast and their sunny side up and, and their bacon and their sausage and their hash browns and their orange juice and just all the good things that you love, right? Just a great country breakfast. And his mom and dad looked at him, seven kids. Took a little piece of paper and slid it across the table to him, Joshy. You're going to leave for college in nine months. We wanted to prepare you. We hope you know that we wanted to prepare you for life in what was going to be a Babylon in your world. You're going to step out of home. You're going to step out. You're going to be on your own. And we've had these 50 things on a piece of paper that we've been dating and checking all these years from the time you've been just a baby. All the things we wanted to get accomplished with you. Today's our report card day. We want you to look at the list, and we want you to tell us how you did. He looked at that list and couldn't believe it. Dates and check marks all through his 17 years of life. A mom and dad that were tracking him, investing in him. He said they hit everyone except for one. They did not teach him how to do small engine repair. <laughs> that was one of the dad's goals, you know. Let's teach this boy how to work on a lawnmower engine, right? Well, he didn't get that done, but he said 49 out of 50. And when I looked at these, I thought, Nelson, bingo. Every one of these you can see and trace back just in the subtle hints we get from the Daniel story. Daniel had parents like Josh Mulderhill's parents. They stamped him. Early age. How'd they stamp him? You know what they did? Number one, Josh, we wanted you to respect God-ordained authority. There's authorities in life. The world doesn't revolve around you. You've got to understand. You've got to submit sometimes. Doesn't mean you're obnoxious. Doesn't mean you're mean. Sometimes you're in situations where Nebuchadnezzars do stupid stuff. You've got to show some respect, even if it's a captive situation, right? Daniel learned that early. Josh, we wanted you to learn personal responsibility. I don't care if you are anonymous in Babylon. We've stamped you, Josh, and we want you to represent the king and his values regardless of where you go in life. You're personally responsible. want to stamp your young man, your young lady. Respect God-ordained authority. Learn personal responsibility. Understand suffering as a life reality. Sometimes, Daniel, we've got to go into captivity and do stuff we don't want to do. And suffering is a fact of life. And stuff happens and bones break and dreams get shattered and, and, and and things get destroyed, and goals get frustrated, and you've got to understand, Josh, that that's a part of life. They wanted to him to develop a biblical worldview of, of manhood and womanhood. Even if you go into a place like Babylon and they neuter you, you are still a man, Daniel. You're still a man. God stamped you with that identity. And no anatomical part will define that. They wanted Josh Mulvihill to understand a biblical view of manhood and womanhood. They wanted him to know how to grow spiritually. I got to hit these quick. They wanted to, want him to understand internet and social media and how to navigate that. Because you get Babylonian eyes with digital Babylon in your pocket. They wanted him to know how to navigate that and what to be aware of and what to be careful about. They wanted him to know how to make introductions of family and friends and how to do that in a way that honors people. They wanted him to know how to text and email and, and how to have text and email etiquette. I always know somebody's new to the Internet when they put their post in all caps. You ever see that? Etiquette over 
internet world, you're shouting. They just want to be really clear, but you're shouting, shouting, right? They want him to know how to navigate this stuff. They want him to exhibit a, a strong work ethic. They wanted him to develop a biblical view of money. Because Daniel's in a position, you're going to see later, he's in a position, he gets rewarded for his hard work. They wanted him to understand time management. They wanted him to be able to cook simple meals. That comes in handy when you're not eating the Nebuchadnezzar's cuisine. You've got to come up with something on your own. You'll see that next week. They wanted him to do laundry and be able to do laundry and tidy up, fold his laundry. They wanted him to maintain a good appearance and personal hygiene in place. They wanted him to understand nutrition and healthy diet. Comes up next week. They wanted him to dress appropriate to the occasion. They wanted him to read and write well. That's why we got the book of Daniel. Somebody who named him Daniel said, we want you to be able to write, kid. That's why we got the book, 12 chapters. They wanted him to give and receive forgiveness freely. They wanted him to know how to care for a pet. Nothing like caring for a few lions in a hungry lion's den. Daniel knew how to handle that with his, his God's help. They wanted him to develop an appreciation for nature. They wanted him to know why and when to date. These are just some of the 50. These are also ways you stamp a son or a daughter with an identity they will never shake regardless of the digital Babylons of the world are you stamping not not manipulating not brainwashing not coercing not not uh, arm twisting no no giving giving a reason for and why you do things that's your job that's my job Where are you drawing your line this morning? Do you have any? Do you want to draw that line and draw it today? It'll save you a lot of heartache. And it'll position you to be a servant of Daniel's God. And you'll, in a, you'll be in a position to do so much good in the world. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much. For this, a second sermon in the series on the book of Daniel. Living in the lion's den, and boy, we're there. And we're immersed in digital Babylon. We think it's a, something far, far away, but it's right here. It's in our pockets. The philosophy of Babylon is right in our pockets. This philosophy of pride and prejudice, this philosophy of power and prestige, this philosophy that says I can assert myself, flip God off, live any way I want, do whatever I want to do, not worry about drawing lines, don't worry about distinctions. I can dishonor my daddy and my mama who named me Danielle if I so choose. Well, this morning we make a greater proposal. And that proposal is, God, you've stamped this. You've stamped us. Don't let me soon forsake the love stamping that's been invested into my life. Don't let us forget it. And Father, I ask and pray this morning those of us who find ourselves in places where we're having to make a really hard decision in a culture that's lost its value and sense of truth, would you let this series be a clarion call for us men and women forward and draw the line sharp and clear there's a lot of things I can do but I can't do that and one of the things I cannot do this morning is neglect to offer my life to the Lord Jesus Christ I have to draw that line nobody nobody messes with Savior of the world who came and lived and died and rose again he ascended into heaven and not for a second do I ever want to believe I can do life without him and maybe this morning there's a few here who've tried to do just that very thing 
they work into a new reality. They understand it's a new, there's two kingdoms, there's two worldviews, there's two names that are being offered in this world. And I ask and pray we'll accept the name that you have stamped us with, created by God, made in your image, male and female, designed to shine your light in an age that's lost its way. Jesus, would you come in? And I ask and pray you would just shift aside this area. Reinvigorate us with your grace and your power and your strength. And help us to live and flourish for the glory of God. We ask all of these things in your name. Will you stand with me? Remember who you are and go in his grace and peace. Have a great week.